guys. I am so excited about this interview. I interviewed Charlotte Hacker. I found her through Pinterest, actually. She's a fellow blogger. And this is such a great conversation for aspiring wildlife biologists. We talk about her career path to become a PhD candidate. She's almost finished with her PhD, and she studies snow leopard genetics. But her path towards getting this PhD opportunity is such a great one to listen to because she had a lot of different difficulties that so many students would be devastated by. And at the time, I think she was devastated too, but she bounced back, and now she has such a great perspective on life. Before we jump into the episode, are you an aspiring wildlife biologist? biologist who is not sure about their career path, or maybe you are sure, but you want to become more competitive for careers. For January only, I am re-releasing my seven steps to find your wildlife biology career path. It is a three-part video series. Video one and two are out. This is completely free. Video one tells you why it's so important for you to understand what your career path is. And this is based on my own 17 years in this experience. And I am extremely vulnerable in this series. I tell you exactly exactly how my experiences played out on the job market. I have been on and off the job market since 2012. So it's very current and I have a lot of different experiences to talk about. The second video, which I released today, is all about the seven steps. What are the seven steps and what you need to do to actually figure out your career path? The third video, which I'm releasing next week, is all about the how, how you can implement these seven steps in your life. So head over to fancyscientist.com. At the top, you will see free training. Make sure to enter your information so you can get this free video series right now. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Hello, Charlotte. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So you're currently a PhD student. That, is that correct? Yes, I am technically a PhD candidate and I am ABD. So I'm all about dissertation. I'll be defending and graduating this summer. So I'm in the home stretch. I've just got one semester left. Oh, wow. So yeah. Can you tell us about your PhD research and how you got there, your journey to become a scientist? Sure. So specifically what I focus on, I am a geneticist. And so specifically, I do that with snow leopards. So I more or less, I like to think of it as kind of a crime scene investigation, CSI for snow leopards sort of thing. I walk around Central Asia and I pick up snow leopard scat or their poop, and then I extract the DNA from it. And then with that DNA, I can get all sorts of information. So I can look at individual genetic profiles to determine abundance. I can see who's related to who. I can see how snow leopards are moving through the landscape. And then I can also look at the DNA of the prey that the snow leopard ate. So that gives me an understanding of diet. And that has a lot of application in my work, particularly for understanding 
livestock dependency and how that impacts herder livelihoods and how that impacts attitudes towards snow leopards. And in general, my research has been done pr predominantly on the Qinghai Tibetan Plateau in China, but my advisor has been doing this for about 10 or 12 years now, longer than that, maybe even now, closer to 15. And so we've got scat samples from all across snow leopard range. So they're found in 12 different countries throughout Central Asia. And so while I focus in China, you know, we have some projects in Kyrgyzstan and a few in Mongolia and Pakistan as well. And so a lot of my work is looking at estimating snow leopard populations, what they're eating and um, how we can prevent conflicts between snow leopards and humans due to livestock depredation and loss. Well, actually, let's talk about your research first, and then we can go more into your background okay. about how you became it. So, so for the if this is your first podcast, I actually did a similar thing with forest elephants. I, mm -hmm. I looked at their poop and got information about like who was related to whom. Not as much diet, although other researchers did that. So, forest elephants they poop like seventeen to twenty times a day, mm -hmm. but cats do like what once. So and they're more secretive too. So, how do you are. find their scats? It's actually, so snow leopards in particular of, you know, cats in general can be elusive, a little sneaky, but snow leopards are particularly difficult to find because behaviorally they are much more shy and the natural environment that they live in is really difficult for humans to access. It's these high altitude, very rugged, cold climates. And, and in general, they're living in areas with low oxygen and they're extremely well camouflaged with their environment which is pretty incredible. You know, I, I've never seen a snow leopard in the wild. And I joke that, you know, a dozen have probably seen me and I just, mm -hmm. you know, couldn't quite catch them. <laughs> but finding their scat is actually a lot easier than finding the snow leopard itself, which is why non-invasive genetics as a tool to study them is so important. So snow leopards kind of take the path of least resistance when they're moving through these mountainous landscapes. And so they often take these kind of narrow corridors or these natural paths that are moving through the mountains. And so we pick those same paths and we just, you know, head down and we're looking for scat that has bones or hair in it, scat that we think is of carnivore origin. There are numerous other predators that live with snow leopards. And so things like wolves and Tibetan brown bears and red fox and palaces cat. And so those are also scat that we kind of accidentally pick up while we're also mm -hmm. scanning for snow leopards, which has led to other projects, which is great. So it's all, you know, that's worked out, but Mm -hmm. But finding scat is actually not that difficult, particularly given how, how hard it is to find snow leopards themselves. Finding what they leave behind is, is much, much easier. Yeah. I remember watching planet earth behind the scenes mm -hmm. and I think, didn't they like stake out for months and months to like try to find months. one snow leopard? Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. The patience. And I, I have a couple of colleagues who they study snow leopard, what, snow leopard hotspots or what we call them. So it's where multiple, the home ranges of multiple individuals overlap. And so I got to sample in one of those sites in particular. And I was so excited because I was like, oh, you know, like this person saw a snow leopard here. I'm going to see a snow leopard here. And it just never quite, never quite panned out. But, you know, we also do some camera trapping. And so that's really nice because, you know, you know that there's a snow leopard there. Genetically, I'm identifying, yes, there's a snow leopard here. And that's great but it's really nice to see a photo of one where you were standing at one point. It just kind of gives you a little bit extra bump of encouragement that, you know, for not seeing your study species pretty much ever, <laughs> they are there. <laughs> yeah. It's not some like 
mystical gnome leaving exactly. little stats. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it feels like that. Like I'm just kind of chasing this, this phantom around the mountains or something like that. But yeah. Are you able to match the DNA to the individual ever? Like, do you ever catch them pooping on camera? I should. So we set up a, we set up our camera traps where we think we're going to find snow leopards specifically. And they commonly like to stick to these rocky outcrops. And what they'll often do is they'll mark these outcrops. And so we had one camera trap that we stuck kind of looking into an outcrop and going through the photos, there was a snow leopard that just right there, just like defecated. <laughs> I mean, like you could just perfectly see everything. And that was kind of cool, but that's, that's the only instance of actually linking a snow leopard I saw on camera to kind of their genetic profile. Otherwise, you know, we're kind of using that camera trapping data and the genetic data to complement one another as, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, trying to compare either. Cool. And for those of you who don't know, you can identify individuals from camera traps. A lot of animals you can't, mm -hmm. but for spotted animals and striped animals, you can because they have unique patterns. So you study what they eat too. And I know mm -hmm. snow leopards and other cats and predators are accused of eating livestock. So are they really consuming livestock or is it mostly wild prey that they're, that they're getting? So we're finding at least in China that it varies by site, but we're finding we, at first this whole molecular diet analysis approach that we were using, where we were just looking at the DNA and the SCAD and matching it to the species that the snow leopard ate based on these reference sequences of DNA that are online. There's just, you know, databases of them. At first we were just applying that to snow leopards, but then, you know, we have all this scat from all these other different species. Only about 30% of the scat we collect are, is actually snow leopard. So mm -hmm. there's all these other species that we also look at like wolves and Eurasian lynx. And that is giving us now a more holistic view of what's going on in the whole ecosystem. When I was just looking at snow leopards, there were, occurrences of livestock in the diet but for the most part snow leopards are eating what's what what the wild prey base is and at most of our field sites that's blue sheep they're they're pretty much everywhere and that's kind of a, a snow leopard's favorite meal and then we're finding that they supplement blue sheep which are a larger ungulate you know medium bodied but larger mm -hmm. for the area with what i like to call snow leopard snacks so pika and marmot <laughs> every once in a while you'll get a hair in there and so it's it's interesting because you see these occurrences of livestock in the diet and you'll have things like yak or goat, sheep. At one point we found a pig, which was pretty cool because that hadn't really been represented in previous snow leopard mm -hmm. diet studies. And so they, but, but the degree to which the, I think the main problem is, is that this happens everywhere. So yeah. it's worse in some areas than others, but no matter where you look across snow leopard habitat, if there's livestock there, there's going to be conflict at some point because yeah. of snow leopard ate one. And so it's really this huge range wide problem, which I think is where we get into the issue of, of how, how do you best manage it? But looking at other carnivores in conjunction with snow leopards, we're finding that wolves are more responsible than any other carnivore by far. And Here in the United States. <laughs> wolves are most often to take livestock, but they're usually taking bigger livestock. They usually only stick to yak. And so if you have yak, wow, then, that's surprising. Yeah. So if you have yak, then, and yak are huge. Snow leopards really aren't that big. They're on average about 70 pounds. I think people picture them a lot larger than they actually yeah. are, but they're, you know, they're about two meters in length with tail and they're only about 70 pounds. Whereas as wolves have a lot more, a boldness, I would say personality wise, but they, they're, they're much better equipped to take down a yak. And um, they hunt in packs too. Exactly. There's multiples, uh, multiple wolves 
you know, taking down an animal. And so if you have yak as a herder, you probably want to put into place things that are going to specifically deter wolves. And what that is, mm-hmm. is something that we're kind of working on testing. Those are other side projects in terms of non-lethal predator deterrence and how we can best fit deterrent methods based on the species most likely to take the livestock. But snow birds will take anything. So you might get a yak, you might get a goat, you might get a sheep, you might get a pig, you might get, I found a, a chicken in one. So it's, it's kind of the unpredictability with snow leopards that I think is what makes it a little bit more difficult. Whereas mm-hmm. wolves are just more likely to take down one, one species we're finding. Yeah. And that that's only with our data set, you know, across our field sites that, that may not necessarily hold up true around other parts of snow leopard range, but that's what we're finding. And weren't snow leopards recently not delisted, but their, their status changed and they changed from endangered to threatened. And that was actually kind of controversial because (laughs) some of the range states that wanted, they wanted them to be endangered still. So then for tourism, they could say like, we had this endangered species. They were endangered up until 2017. And then they were, they were downlisted to, to vulnerable. So still in the threatened category, but mm-hmm. having an, not having an endangered status takes away a lot of funding. It takes away a lot of attention. It takes away a lot of support. There's, there's kind of something, I, there's kind of something sexy about being endangered as an animal, right? It brings in a lot more attention, a lot more money. Yeah. And you're right for these, these places that are kind of depending on snow leopards or using them as an ecotourism tool or being able to claim like, Hey, we have this species here. We need funding. That really is a detriment. And unfortunately, you know, snow leopards are found in 12 different countries. Their range is huge. It's a, what we think we know of it is about 2 million kilometers squared. You see estimates as high as three kilometers squared. And so you're taking a species that occupies this huge, massive range and you're saying, okay, well, the whole species, even though it occupies this entire area, we're just going to downlist it, you know, altogether. And that's problematic because in some areas across that range, yes, snow leopards are doing pretty well. Mongolia as a country mm-hmm. has done an excellent job with protecting snow leopards. But then you have other areas where either snow leopards are just not doing well. And then you have other areas where we don't have enough data to make a decision. Yeah. So in you know the Western part of their range, when you're looking at Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, you know, there are issues there related to poaching that are a little bit higher at least what we know of. And so snowbirds there aren't doing great. And then you have places like the Tibetan Plateau, which are so under-surveyed and under-researched that we don't really have enough information to make a decision. And so a lot of the population estimates that went into downlisting the snow leopards were by and large kind of the best guesstimates we could make. And I think that that was just a little, a little hard for, a little, a, a difficult pill for people to swallow because it mm-hmm. seems like, you know, there were, we've done all this research over the last 10 years or so, and, it, and it's come a long way, but it's scary as a scientist to lose an endangered status because now you're, you know, the grants you can apply for, you can't apply for because your animal's not endangered or so. Yeah. And snow leopards are, are hard to study. And so there's just so little that we know about them. And so slapping a, a population number on the species and saying, you know, this is what it is and it's high enough to now not be endangered. I think people, it just took them a second to kind of sit back and kind of take that in. (laughs) And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you have population estimates even now that are still wildly varying and, and it's, it's just a big, there's, there's a lot of 
outcomes and a lot of consequences of a decision that very few people actually make when it comes down to it. So with the IUCN, you know, there's a panel of scientists that get on board, they make the decision and then that, that's kind of it. And so it, it's, it's tough, it's controversial. I, you know, I try to be neutral about it. <laughs> I don't wanna say that it's right or it's wrong, but at minimum, it proves that we need to be doing more work to study the species. Yeah. So how did you arrive at snow leopards? Tell me your path to become a PhD candidate. Yeah, that's a long story. I so like <laughs> okay, you, we have time if you have time. <laughs> so like you, I, I, I fell in love with elephants in Africa. I, my freshman year of college, I went in on a pre-veterinary track. I was a biology major and I was going to go to vet school. And I think that was by and large because I thought that if I wanted to work with animals that I had to be a vet. I didn't know any other conservation biologists. And, and when I was younger, looking back on it, you know, I would see Steve Irwin on TV and Jeff Corrin, and I loved watching mm-hmm. those shows, but they, when I was little, didn't resonate with me as scientists. I, mm-hmm. I, I never really made that connection. I think I just saw them as, as entertainers that were teaching me something. So now the science communication platform that we all know about now, I mean, in the early nineties, mid nineties, when I was watching it, I, you know, as a kid, I just thought it was an entertaining show. And then I'd heard, you know, Jane Goodall, of course, and learned about her and, but she seemed so unobtainable, you know, she was just <laughs> this amazing researcher and, and British and, and older. And so I just didn't see anybody that looked really like me in my environment. And science wise, the only science person that I really saw and connected with was Bill Nye. And it was, you know, it was a white guy in a lab coat. And so I, I never as a kid and as a female growing up thought even about conservation biology or conservation science until I went to Africa, which really started because I was failing out of college. And oh wow, yeah, I was desperate to cling on to something. I just did not know what to do with my life. And I felt like I was just wasting time and spending a lot of money at an undergrad that I, you know, I ended up liking in the end when I came back from Africa. But my first year there was, was really difficult. And so I just kind of threw everything to the wind and and went off to Africa. And, and that really changed everything because I finally met conservation biologists there. And I think that kind of cemented what I wanted to do with my life and, and what I wanted to do moving forward. And that I wanted to do research and specifically that I wanted to do elephants. I think that for me was so powerful and strong that I just would not let up. I was hell bent on, you know, being an elephant researcher specifically mm-hmm. And coming back to the U.S. and you know looking at jobs and realizing that yeah, being an elephant researcher is great in theory, but you know how do you actually do that? <laughs> how do you accomplish that? And I just wanted to get back to Africa. And I had a professor that suggested grad school that I I should go get my master's, and he kind of explained everything of, of how to go about that. And so I found elephant researchers, and I emailed them, and I'm you know introducing them to myself and everything, and and I. Very few responded to me, but I did have one, Dr. Bruce Jolte, who had a couple projects going on in South Africa and and Kenya as well. And that finally worked out. There was a semester where I had to waitress at Outback Steakhouse. There was a gap between when I graduated and started my master's because of funding. I did not want to pay for my master's. So I had to wait for that funding to come through. And originally my project was going to be in Africa and then I got there and that just all fell apart. Like I moved to Kentucky from Pennsylvania and I get there and 
versus like, well, this isn't going to work out how we thought. And I was devastated. And so I, at the time, I didn't really know what to do. He had said, well, there's this research technician position available at the San Diego Zoo. And I think you should apply for it. You know, they want to do some elephant research and they're looking for, for a research tech to do that. And I, I think you'd be qualified. And again, I was devastated because <laughs> I didn't. You were going to leave your graduate position and take a, a temporary tech position. Was that the idea? Or you would, yeah, you, would you still so, do your master's while you were doing that? Exactly. So okay. I was still going to be a student at Western Kentucky, but I was going to be employed by San Diego for a year. Mm-hmm. And during that year, one of the projects that I did would be what I would use for my master's thesis. And so and meanwhile, I just moved to Kentucky. I just packed up everything. I <laughs> moved to Kentucky. <laughs> And so I, I applied and I, I got the job. And so then I moved out, you know, four months later to San Diego. And I, I wouldn't say that I went in with a closed mind. I was really excited to do the work. And I was really like pumped to be able to work in such a, an amazing facility. The Institute for Conservation mm-hmm. Research there is absolutely incredible. And, you know, I just thrived there and I really it really kind of changed my whole perspective on my approach to science and the way I looked at conservation. And I really felt like I, I kind of became a scientist there, right? I fell in love with conservation science in Africa and that's great, but I, I felt like I became a scientist working at San Diego, but then that position was over. So I go back to Kentucky, I finish up my coursework and now I'm looking for a job <laughs> postmasters and trying to stick with elephants. And that was, you know, obviously a niche that I was trying to kind of wiggle my way into and looking maybe into going back to Africa, not really, you know, not really seeing that as a possibility. I had a partner I had, you know, I had other considerations at the time and priorities at that point, but I ended up finding a job in the animal behavior department at the Toledo zoo in Ohio. And so I ended up taking that position when I got that and that position taught me a lot I expanded beyond elephants. So I was kind of given these tasks outside of, of just elephants. And so that was kind of where big cat came in because Mm -hmm. we were doing a lot of different kind of behavioral studies throughout the zoo. But one of my jobs was to look at indicators of welfare, specifically looking at behavior. And we had a snow leopard at the time who, you know, I was just kind of tasked with, you know, she sits there all day, like, let's give her some stuff to do. Let's figure out how, how to give her behavioral opportunities to let her be a snow leopard. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, was looking at, you know, I I just go to Google (laughs) and I'm looking in through literature and I'm emailing other, you know, other zoos and seeing what they do. And, and I just realized that there is not a lot that we know about snow leopards. Like what a snow leopard does in a day is largely unknown. (laughs) And so trying to, figure out what Malinka might want to do in a day was, was tough. And that, so that kind of stayed in the back of my head. And then I think as I progressed through my position at Toledo, I just, I didn't really see it as somewhere I was going to want to stay long-term. I had an incredible boss. She's amazing, but it just didn't really feel like somewhere where I was going to be able to grow as a researcher and as a scientist. And so at that point I started looking at my PhD and I think it's, I think more or less me starting my PhD, I didn't feel like I had any other choice. I felt like, you know, I, I have to, I don't want to be here long-term and how am I going to get a job doing what I want to do? And, and I want to get, you know, I want to study elephants. And so 
I, I decided that I was just going to start emailing all of these eloquent people that I emailed, you know, four years earlier when I was looking to get my master's <laughs> and ask them about funding and positions for a PhD student. And again, you know, it was the same thing. It was, you know, if you have your own funding, I'm happy to take yeah. you. I don't have funding or, you know, you, I wouldn't get a response or I'd follow up or, and at that point I knew a lot of these people. And so, you know, I felt like they were very honest with me about, you know, the funding situation. And a lot of them at that time were also not sending students to Africa anymore, that they had situations where it had just gotten too dangerous. And they had just decided that they weren't going to send students there anymore. And so I started looking into other possibilities of what else would I want to study for a PhD. And I broke down everything that I loved about elephants and kind of thought like, how can I transfer Mm -hmm. these things? So I like big mammals. That's, you know, I have no shame about that. (laughs) Sometimes we get a bad rap, but you know, I like my big mammals and I wanted a human wildlife conflict component and I wanted to, to travel. So I wanted it to be something international. And then I also kind of wanted the flexibility of, you know, them being a species that's relatively common in zoological institutions so that I could have maybe research avenues there as well in the United States. And so I, I just kind of made the connection one day watching Malinka. I was like, oh, maybe I'd like to do this whole snow leopard. It seems like there's a lot to do with the snow leopard stuff. And so I contacted my now advisor. I, I emailed him. And that just kind of kickstarted everything. We, we talked on the phone. I visited my universities in Pittsburgh. I'm at Duquesne University. I visited and met with him and felt like, you know, it was a good fit. I'd been talking to a few other advisors at the time and, you know, looking at a few other things, but that was definitely what I felt like was the best fit for me and where I wanted to go moving forward. And it just, that was the fall of 2016 was when I started. And now that's just, you know, nearly five years later, four and a half years later has expanded so far beyond what I ever thought possible. And I'm just so thankful that I, I'm thankful that people said, no, I can't take you, you know, for the elephant stuff now, because it's, it's been such a journey up to this point. And I'm still getting to be involved with elephant work in some capacity, which is nice. And so it's, you know, I've learned so much in the last four and a half years during my doctorate. And a lot of that was just really being scared out of my mind and, and kind of learning to adapt. And then with that, getting the confidence to pursue, you know, any, anything else I wanted to study. And so that was a very long answer to your question, but no, I love (laughs) it. I mean, this is you, you covered like so many points that I emphasize to aspiring wildlife biologists. Like I love, I love your attitude about pivoting and I'm sure you didn't have this attitude at the time. Like, I think you said you were devastated with your San Diego job, but I, I personally think that life always ends up working out for me. And Mm -hmm. even though you get rejected from something at the time, it's like something you really wanted. When I reflect back, I'm like, well, if that had had happened, this wouldn't have happened. And I'm really happy with this option. So I love that. Can, are you able to say why your, your, why your original project failed that you couldn't do oh, it? Oh, yeah. So they had been, okay. So the project that was in South Africa, there had been a master's student before me that did not do so well there. And mm-hmm. I think kind of caused some tension with, 
with the owners that were at that reserve and then, you know, my advisor. And so I think part of that was just kind of taking a break and resetting and yeah, this did not go well. And let's make sure that this doesn't happen again. And, and then there was a project in Tanzania that I was excited about that a, a PhD student was doing and she needed like a, a research tech. And so when I contacted her, I had, you know, she had this position advertised and I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking to do my master's. And do you think this could be a master's project? And and Bruce was pretty open to that as well, that that could be a possibility. And then a huge portion of her study herd got poached. There was a mass poisoning event. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, she emailed me and was like, God, you know, I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, like she, I, yeah. it was just something that probably wasn't going to work out in the time frame that I needed. And so it was, you know, it was sad, obviously. And, and I felt awful for her and, but yeah, those things are, are just part of international work in general. But I think with these large species that have a huge, where they're politically sensitive or they have this huge human wildlife mm-hmm. conflict component, you never quite know what's, what's going to be the holdup or what, what might happen. Yeah. And that's such a good lesson for aspiring scientists too, because almost nobody projects goes as planned. Mm-hmm. There's always, <laughs> and there's, and it's always like major things too. It's not just like a little thing. It's always like major, major things. So this is such a great story. I also love that you're, you're telling of like following up with the advisors for elephants and emailing them because so many students, I think are afraid to email professors or if they get a, if they get no response or a no, they think it's the end of the world. And Mm -hmm. in in reality, they're either like too busy or they can't have students. And I just, I just love your attitude about that and how persistent you were. Can I ask you a question? I don't think you can take personally. Yeah, you can't. (laughs) Or if you do, you're going to have a really hard time. <laughs> so you mentioned you struggled with grades in the beginning. Did that, so did that impact your ability to get into a graduate school? Because I, I know some people that I work with, like they say their grades aren't good enough. Is that mm-hmm. like, do you have to have good grades? Can you talk about your experience with that? Yeah. So I, I failed courses my first year of undergrad and it took me a long time to bounce back from that. I, mm-hmm. Once I got back from Africa and the stars kind of aligned, so to speak, I had way more motivation to do well in classes. I was way more confident. And I also, at that point, was taking upper levels that I was just more interested in. And I wasn't Mm -hmm. in this huge auditorium with 200 other kids who were, I went to a school that was known for the pharmacy program. And so these kids are coming in and they're, they're just getting hundreds on tests, no problem. And I'm I'm not. <laughs> and so yeah. I didn't have that sort of kind of beat down on a regular basis. But yeah, I I was when I graduated, I graduated with a 3.2, which I suppose isn't, you know, it's not I don't want to say it's that bad. It's not that great. And I explained that in my cover letter. I wrote a couple sentences about it. And I never really felt like it impacted me. But when I did ask somebody about it, I think this was my master's advisor. My GRE scores were really good. Like, Mm. and I, I worked my tail off for that. I don't think the GREs are fair. I don't think that they're a good measure of who's going to be a good scientist, who's going to be a good grad student. But in my case, they, they saved me. But that being said, I, you know, there's so much more to you than a GPA and a good advisor and a good school and a good program is going to see that experience, 
you know, doing things like outreach, having, you know, having a clear passion for what you want to do, things like being persistent and having good communication skills. I mean, those are all things that are also lucrative. And so I think getting into grad school for me, I had to find my advisor first, then I applied to the program. So I also had an advisor vouching for me. Yeah. Not all universities work that way. So my PhD into the university first, and then, you know, this rotation program. So I picked my advisor first, but that's not usually how it works in my specific program. And so that might help you too, if you pick a program where you have an advisor that says, you know, I want this student. And then that gate is maybe a little bit wider open for you to get into the program. But overall, that's how we did it too. And we were in the biology department, but within ecology and all the ecologists chose their advisor ahead of time and knew who Mm -hmm. they're going into. And then the other students, they did the rotations and maybe they had one picked out, but they didn't have them like vouch for, for them, like you said. Right. Yeah. So in, in the end, I don't think my grades hurt me that much. And I think now, you know, as a being a TA and, and moving into a position where I may have to teach and or going into academia, I think it's made me a much better teacher for that too. So what do you want to do now? Cause you always mentioned you want to work with elephants. What's your like <laughs> ideal career? So I, I'm, I don't want to say I'm wide open. I think that I, I see a lot of opportunities and that's really exciting. Ideally, I, I would like to be in some sort of research institute position. So I'm, I'm open to going into academia, very open to going into academia, if it's the right fit. And I don't mm-hmm. think that most academic situations for me would be the right fit. But I, I would really like to go into some sort of research institute setting. And I would love to continue the carnivore work. I, I love doing my work now. The snow leopard stuff for me has been kind of my baby the last you know, four and a half years. And there's so much application of what we've been able to do with monitoring these snow leopard populations in China that I would love to do, you know, in the US or in other areas of the world. I think that moving forward, I'm more focused on just making sure that I have the the academic freedom or research freedom to pursue Mm -hmm. different things. But I also really like the idea of, of hitting the ground running with a project that's kind of up and raring to go. And so I like the idea of, of picking up projects that are already, you know, we need someone to do this, <laughs> you know, and then yeah. I get there and I, and I do that, but then you also have the ability to, you know, research the things you want and build collaborations. And, and I think that's what made getting my PhD in the first place. So attractive was that I could eventually have this freedom. And I spent a good majority of my PhD in China and, and I love I loved China. I miss it a lot. I got kicked out because of COVID and I would love to be able to go back and finish up some of that work, but that, you know, who knows when that's going to be able to happen. Yeah. (laughs) Right now I'm just kind of moving forward, you know, hoping to take the tools that I've, I've learned. I love being, you know, I love being a poop biologist. I think that that's, there's so much really amazing information we can get through non-invasive genetics. And so in any capacity, I would like to definitely keep doing that as well. Yeah. As a geneticist, you can pivot pretty easily. It seems like uh, working at a zoo would be a good job for your research position at a zoo. Yeah. If there's, I mean, like I, I joke that if anyone's Diego, listening, <laughs> yeah, I, I joke that San Diego ruined me because it was, it was my, I was 22. I feel like I got my dream job when I was 22. It was just yeah. a temporary job. And I was living in Southern California and, you know, all these really yeah. things, but those big kind of heavy hitters where they're based out of zoological institutions and, and doing work with the collection and then doing work abroad and doing work locally. Like I, I 
really, really, really felt like I fit best, you know, if you were to put me in a box, fit best into that particular environment for sure. Absolutely. So I found Charlotte through Pinterest, actually, through an app that you can use with Pinterest called Tailwind. And she's one of the, there's not that many of us, but she's one of the conservation bloggers out there. So can you tell us about your your blog and why you started blogging? Yeah, I, so I've always really liked writing and I've liked outreach and I've been, I think scientists in general are more creative than we get credit for, especially Mm -hmm. conservation biologists. We have to be creative to design the studies and actually take our data and interpret it. And then, you know, these are some really complex conservation challenges that we're trying to solve and, and mitigate. And so that creativity for me, I get in my science, but when I was growing up, I always felt like I was, I was going to do something art capacity wise. I mm-hmm. was always really drawn to that and I was good at that. So I don't necessarily know if I like loved it, but I was good at it. And I took some like college art classes and I almost, when I was at the brink of leaving my bio degree, I almost just, you know, switched over to an art major. And, but I think that the, the blogging and the creating the content and doing more of those kind of graphical things for me is just kind of, I don't want to say balances me out, but I really enjoy that part of communicating my science in terms of appealing to that more creative side of me. And so that's kind of where it started. And then it, now it's just been something where I would post something on Instagram, like a camera trap photo of a snow leopard. And then people would DM me all these questions and it just got easier to kind of like write a blog post about mm-hmm. it and then link the blog post. And then you just kind of accrue interest in, and I think I'm biased, obviously, but I think what I do is so cool. <laughs> like I just, I'm Other people so do. good. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I just, I'm so lucky to be so passionate about what I study and what I do, like what I do for my livelihood. I love doing And I think that that has had its downfall in some cases because my work-life balance goes out the window pretty quick, but I, I love sharing that passion. I love sharing that information and blogging was just an easier way to do that. And, and then there's also, I, I like the challenge of reaching out to people and, and communicating with as many people as I can. And so it seems like platforms like Pinterest, social media platforms seem to be one of the easier ways to do that. And you get kind of automatic Mm -hmm. feedback if you have a website, because you're getting the metrics when you get it back and you can kind of see what's working and how you can reach people. And so that's just been kind of something fun on the side that I feel like I've really benefited from and gotten better science communication skills with. And then also I noticed on your blog that you uh, have an Etsy store too. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Yeah, so I, my side hustle. Okay, so back up a little bit. (laughs) My grandmother, my grandmother and I were really, really close. And she was the one, when I said I wanted to go to Africa, she was, she was like, yeah, you know, go. And everyone else was like, oh my God. (laughs) She's just always been really crazy supportive of like the big ideas, the big things, the pushing yourself. And she maybe like, maybe this is a stereotype, like all grandmothers, my, she knitted a lot. And so (laughs) she would sit in her, you know, her recliner and she would knit And so I subsequently learned how to knit and it became something that was really comforting to me and I would do it quite a bit. And so I would just make people scarves and make people just, you know, I was just, every time you got a gift from me, it was going to be something (laughs) knitted. 
And in college, I ended up kind of doing it as a side hustle. So I would kind of like sell these scarves on the side. And so I would do, we had like an outdoors farmer's market that ran in the spring and the fall. And, and then I just kind of lost, you know, I just stopped doing it. I got busy and I hadn't done it in years. And then I decided recently I had some time with COVID and kind of sitting down with the pandemic that I was just going to start knitting again and making some stuff. And I posted a few things on Instagram and people, you know, bought them. And I was like, oh man, like this feels good. I forgot, I forgot how like fun this was. And that it was just this release to do something creative and something different. And I had, you know, painted and all sorts of things over the years. And so it just got easier. You know, I started looking into farmer's markets, but then with the indoor farmer's markets being closed because of COVID in Pennsylvania, I just decided that I was going to try an Etsy store and see what happens. So that's, that's kind of where that came in. So that's a recent thing, but I've been really enjoying it. And my mom, she's so cute. She <laughs> made me a little logo with an elephant on it. And she's <laughs> been, cute. yeah, she's been pretty, pretty supportive of it. So yeah, now, now I have an Etsy shop. <laughs> that's awesome. And, but you said you don't have any work-life balance. So you're you're getting a little bit of balance in there. Yeah. It's gotten a lot better. <laughs> I, I will a hundred percent admit that that the first, especially the first two years of my doctorate, I was not, I was not good at, at it at all. Yeah. It's tough. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time. So before we wrap up, do you have anything else you want to say? Anything we didn't cover or any words of wisdom you want to leave for anybody? <laughs> I think, I think kind of us highlighting the, the being able to pivot. Yeah. That it's okay to do things out of fear that it's okay to, you know, you can be, you know, that's, that's going to bring out, I think, especially if you're in a field like conservation science, but I think one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got during my doctorate was that anybody can get a doctorate if you are stubborn enough. So this this idea that you are not smart enough, you are, you don't know enough, you don't have that, you know, like, that's just not true. I think a lot of it comes down to tenacity and grit Mm -hmm. and being passionate about what you're studying, obviously, you know, that makes a huge difference. And so I think pursuing those passions and then giving yourself a chance to, to do that is, you know, to, to depend on yourself and not, you know, intelligence is not, I don't want to say it's not necessary for a doctorate, but it is one of the very satellite things. And I don't think a lot of people realize that it's really the tenacity. I think that ultimately is what makes you a good scientist and is what is going to get you a PhD. Absolutely. I actually say the exact same thing. Like, yes, you do need to jump through certain hoops with grades and stuff, but Mm -hmm. like you're an example of this. You bounced back. Other people I went to school with, they, I think they had bad grades throughout college and they did have to go back and get a couple of extra courses, but you can mend any of those things. Mm -hmm. And in our field, professors really understand that like one professor told me that the best students are actually like B students, but they like have experience and drive and grit. Like you don't have to be this perfect straight A student. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. It was so much fun having you on yeah, and I wish me. you luck in your career. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>
That was such a great conversation with Charlotte. She touched upon a lot of things. I am actually going to do some takeaways here before we end, but I want to share her information. So her blog is charhacker.com. That's C-H-A-R-H-A-C-K-E-R.com. And she is on Twitter at... C hacker 414. She does have an Instagram, but it is private. So I am not going to give that out. So the first takeaway she mentioned that it's really important to be able to pivot and be flexible. I actually always say this, that if your project, if there's not a major problem or failure, you're not really doing science. That to me is like the definition of science. Things always go wrong. So always be able to go with the flow, deal with the unexpected, and remember my philosophy that life is always happening for you. Once you choose to believe this, your whole life changes because you see things in a new perspective. I have been devastated before by jobs that I knew were the perfect fit for me, that were my job, and then I didn't get them. But what I found out is later on that that led me to a path that I needed to be on. And that's where I am right now. I absolutely love what I do. I am so happy that I founded my own business, that I have this podcast. It's it's something that I never thought I would do. And I remember actually, sometimes I would think there's like no job for me. Like I need to make up my own job. So that's her, my first takeaway from, from this interview is to be flexible and remember that life is always happening for you. The second takeaway is what she said about getting a PhD, and this just goes for being a scientist in general, no matter what education path you follow. So much of it is being stubborn, persistent, resilient. She mentioned that she got bad grades. I know other colleagues of mine, they had bad grades too. They were able to bounce back and still get into a PhD program. You can do this too. It's about being persistent. It's about following up with people. Don't be afraid to cold email professors. Don't be afraid to send those follow-up emails. If they ignore you, it's likely because they can't take any students at the time or because they are buried in emails. Just keep going. If that's really what you want, then be persistent and follow up with those professors. Another takeaway that I really loved is that Charlotte mentioned that she didn't really have any role models and wasn't really able to see herself as a scientist because she didn't see anyone else who looked like herself. And this is why I started Fancy Scientist, because I had the same problem as, as Charlotte. So I saw Bill Nye. Bill Nye was a little too sciencey for me. I'm actually in it for conservation and animals. I don't love science as much for the sake of science. So Bill Nye, he was an older white guy. He was also too sciencey for me. I I was sort of ahead of the the Steve Irwin era. He wasn't he wasn't as popular as much when I was growing up, but he was like too hands-on y and, and of course another male. Jane Goodall, of course, was an inspiration for me, but she was like an extreme scientist. Like she went to these really remote areas and, you know, lived there for years on end. And I could never see myself doing that. So what I'm trying to do here with Fancy Scientist is show that scientists can be like 
regular everyday people. We're not all wearing safari gear in the bush. We are, we look just like, like other people, like teachers, like lawyers. And that's one of the goals of fancy scientists is to really highlight that people you might not expect to be scientists are scientists. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.